0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitri Kalligan. We are here again in the midst of World War Three for another episode 59, I believe it is, getting close to 60 episodes. So thank you so much for sticking around with us after all these weeks. Things are really getting crazy, you know, still hot in the Middle East. Of course, right now we're going to be discussing some crazy things going on in my home state here in the great state of Texas, where a constitutional crisis seems to be unfolding as Our porous open border, it was just reported in December, Border Patrol had 302,000 encounters with illegal immigrants, so at least 300,000 plus illegal immigrants poured into Texas December 2023, highest on record. So we're going to be discussing the standoff in Eagle Pass. We're going to be talking about the situation in Russia with that huge Ukrainian POW plane shot down and the general situation expanding there as we move closer and closer to total Ukrainian state collapse. Of course, we're going to be talking about the situation in Europe as generals from the Netherlands to Scandinavia to other parts of Europe are talking about war with Russia. And of course, we're going to be talking about some church stuff with Elpidifotos on Athos and a whole bunch of other things going on all across the world as World War III continues to rage on. Dimitri, how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Conrad. And I think it's important to address this particular Texas-US question because as much as it appears as a simple domestic situation in America, it, of course, ultimately now, now that it has evolved into a constitutional crisis or like i guess the onset of a constitutional crisis it will affect the entire world in and of itself because the us again it is the nexus for most economic relations around the world it is the richest the most prosperous economy at the moment it is sort of the center of all the all the ties and all the you know the uh, the ropes which connect to a, Shall we say world banking as well as exports and imports? Right at the moment, the you know this particular this particular role has not transitioned to China just yet. So naturally, it's very important as to what exactly occurs in one of the largest United, uh in one of the largest states in the U.S. But looking at the Texas situation, I think in terms of numbers, the actual Border Patrol has done some amazing things just in the last week. Uh, apprehensions statistically have been reduced. I mean. So apprehensions have reduced, and this only means that the migrants are a lot more hesitant to actually cross the border. So they're hanging out in northern Mexico for a bit longer. The apprehensions have decreased from December's 8,000 per day. And look, these numbers are insane, right? Considering, you know, we've looked at numbers of people moving, numbers of people, say, dying, being injured in Israel, Ukraine. So we can kind of tell when Numbers are this of this size, but 8,000 people crossing a border per day in December of 2023 is incredible. And that number has fallen to roughly three to 4,000 per day at the moment because of the work that the National Guard has been doing and the other law enforcement agencies from the state of Texas. Of course, uh, Governor Abbott seems to have uh, really involved himself really d- deeply. And we don't know if Governor Abbott is doing this out of his sort of national patriotic aspirations or it's simply that his. The interest of his particular elite group in Texas is currently undermined by the situation because, again, his state will be the um, recipient of all the negative, the, the negative implications of these large swaps of immigrants coming over the border. This includes, of course, child smuggling, narcotics. the The Texas communities will be affected by all these things, and of course, uh, this could. We're talking about crime as well. We lest we forget the particular uh, people, you know, facilitating these transportations of migrants, both, you know illegal as well as so-called refugees, right? Crossing the border. It's mostly, it mostly is very tied closely to the cartels. There's notorious criminal organizations operating in a mafia-like state, almost mm-hmm. like a like there's criminal organizations operating in Mexico and definitely crossing the border with Texas on occasion in order to push crime in that particular American state. So it's looking like Governor Abbott, really the, the ball is in his court at the moment, how far he wants to take this issue. And it looks like he's not conceding. So whether or not he himself is that much of a red-pilled sort of Trump-like patriot and he wants to defend the country, or it's simply he's protecting his own interests as the governor and looking out for his own political career. I'm not sure, but in either capacity, his interests now directly align with, that, with those of the people of Texas. And it looks like Texas is essentially fighting not just for it, its own future, but also for the future of the entire United States at this point.
0: Yeah, we'll take you through the whole timeline here. I want to start with Abbott's official statement when he effectively announced he was defying the federal government and the Supreme Court's ruling that the feds could cut uh, the razor wire that was set up across the Rio Grande River in Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas, down at the border. And he said, this was on January 24th, 2024, he said, the federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws on the books right now. President Biden has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is that he has smashed records for illegal immigration. Despite having been put on notice in a series of letters, one of which I delivered to him by hand, President Biden has ignored Texas's demand that he perform his constitutional duties. He then outlines some of the numbers and horrible facts about the border crisis that biden has facilitated he then goes on to say james madison alexander hamilton and the other visionaries who wrote the u.s constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels smuggling millions of illegal immigrants across the border that is why the framers included both Article 4, Section 4, which promises that the federal government shall protect each state against invasion, and Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which acknowledges the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. The failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article 4, Section 4 has triggered Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which reserves to this state the right of self-defense. For these reasons, I have already declared an an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. The Texas National Guard, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and other Texas personnel are acting on that authority as well as state law to secure the Texas border. And since then, 25 other states, so a total coalition of 26 states, have, you know, kind of thrown their hat in behind this and say they support Governor Abbott and support Texas. It's every single state with a Republican governor, with the exception of Vermont. And then, of course, North Carolina, who has a Democrat governor, their lieutenant governor, echoed support for Texas. Kentucky's attorney general, who's Republican, echoed support. And a few other states as well had their Republican lower statewide officials express support. And we've seen The Texas National Guard, the Texas Military Department, which again answers directly to the governor, they have been mobilized, and I believe 10 other states also have their national guards on the border. I know Oklahoma, South Carolina, I believe Wyoming, a few others have their national guards down there. Uh, Florida obviously has sent, I believe also there's highway patrol on the roads and stuff as well. So it's a large coalition, and it does seem that uh, much more recently, at least, Biden has effectively, I don't want to say backed down, but they have, he has sent a letter to the Senate saying that he will sign bipartisan immigration reform and border security if it is sent to his desk. So I assume that means that he will, that that means the ball is in the Democrats in the Senate's court at that point, if Biden will sign whatever comes to his desk on this. But of course, they have sent letters to Attorney General Ken Paxton, who was great. He survived an impeachment attempt by liberal republicans a few months back which i supported him against you know he people had to vote people voted for him again there was a recall and he won re-election and he was sent a letter from dhs to say that they need to allow uh, border patrol and dhs into shelby park at eagle pass and he said they're not going to do that of course this is all helped by the fact that border patrol and these people down there don't actually want to cut the razor wires so there's always the question that say. The government, which it doesn't seem like they're going to do, but that the feds go crazy and wanted to have an actual confrontation, you know, with Texas or whichever. I can't imagine that these people that are already working on the border and see how open and crazy it is really have any interest in fighting Texas for wanting to do the basic sane thing of stopping just one of the most porous areas of this ridiculously open border. And, again, people are talking about civil war, and, again, it does really paint an interesting picture And a lot of people have said this similar point, but no, this isn't actually going to lead to a civil war. What it does show is that in the future, when, because of the open border, the demographics in America are so cooked and are so irreparable, that states are going to be the only mechanisms with which Republicans can, you know, leverage power. And right now people see that despite the fact that Republicans are becoming less and less viable on the national level, like some say Trump is really going to be the last one that can even rally a national coalition as a Republican. We still have the majority of these statewide elected offices in these states, you know, due to this federal system. And the Senate as well, of course, will help because that's why they call these systems racist, because all these flyover states full of white people have huge representation with their two senators that they send to the Senate. And, you know, these governors that are quite powerful. And that's why they that's the whole U.S. system being racist kind of thing. But the founders did think about this. And now, you know, we have kind of going to have to abandon the federal jurisdiction. And we're going to have to focus on rallying coalitions of states to do the right thing. And, again, the energy isn't there for that right now. Greg Abbott, I don't think, is brave enough. Again, as we speak, Greg Abbott is actually in India right now, you know, at rallies trying to get more Indians to come and do you know, tech labor and whatnot in the state of Texas, and, you know, just probably rallying for general Indian support because we have so many dang Indians here because Abbott doesn't care about bringing in legal immigrants (laughs) because that's the whole thing. All these people are saber-rattling about the border and illegal immigration, but they all just would be all okay if all these people just had a piece of paper saying they were doing it legally, which is just absurd, of course, because the important factor here is that the white man is being replaced in his own country by people that tend to vote for silly lived-hearted nonsense because of low IQ and the and identity politics nonsense and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, it is too late in many ways on that demographic front and people crap on Abbott for shipping these illegal immigrants to these other places, but from a Texas nationalist perspective, people are talking about Texit. I was at the Texas Nationalist Conference, the Texit conference uh, last year. But you know, people are talking about from a Texas national perspective, that it does help Texas to get some of these illegal immigrants out of the state, even if you know it does hurt the country as a whole to facilitate their spread across you know vast swaths of the nation with bus tickets and whatnot. But look, at a certain level, it would just get so crazy in Texas if they all just stayed here because it's this is the main place where they come through. You know, Arizona, New Mexico, California have a lot as well, but you know Texas is the one state with the single longest border of those four states that you know border Mexico. So it's, it's a really tough situation. Of course, I am somewhat grateful that these Republicans and Abbott did something. Ken Paxton is the better figure than Abbott. He's more based, even though they're both, you know, still, they're still Republicans. So how base can it really get? But this does show you the true ridiculousness that we got to, to where it took to the point where record-setting illegal immigration, the feds want to literally just cut like any barbed wire that's up there. And finally, the states were like, all right, no, that's a bit ridiculous. And, you know,
1: now here we are. Speaking of cooking, I think that the one person who has not left the kitchen, I think, yet is Donald J. Trump, who has, of course, called openly on his social media that all willing states should send National Guard soldiers to Texas. He's completely taking advantage of the situation, naturally calling upon using his enormous platform amongst all republicans and you know he is sort of like the independent republican leader of course and his uh you know soon to be victory in the presidential race will probably cement that but naturally he's pushing all that he has in order to position himself in the best possible way against this corrupt biden administration and that means supporting of course the border which Naturally, was the main one of the main political talking points of his presidential race and ensuing presidency, which was blocked by the courts. Again, the the, the issue returns back to these corrupt courts, not just the federal circuit courts, right, operating in Texas and all, you know, all these southern states and all uh, counties, but essentially, we're talking about the constitutional courts, which. Uh, we've heard some commentary and we've read commentary from various constitutional lawyers and even conservative ones, like this is one, J- Jonathan Turley. He essentially says that even though he agrees with Governor Greg Abbott, he, he believes Greg, Governor Greg Abbott will have, you know, and the state of Texas will find it very difficult to argue constitutionally that the state of Texas is in a state of imminent danger from these waves of illegal immigrants and can actually purport to utilize its. State's rights, you know, it's it's sort of responsibility for self-defense because again, imminent danger needs to be proven, invasion needs to be proven in a court of law, and these constitutional lawyers, they're all saying that look, we we love conservatism, we love Texas, but can Texas, can the state itself, if it, it's it's t- taken to a constitutional court, even before the Supreme Court, for example, like a major court of appeals, can it actually prove this particular state of affairs on its border? And again. This resorts to the larger philosophical question of as, as much as we love the American Constitution, and it is a fairly well-written document, it has withstood at least 200 years. And yeah, it definitely has been amended a, few, a couple of times, but it still is giving American people a lot more rights than some other places around the world. But again, the the query arises, constitutions, what really are they, these documents, if we cannot interpret them properly, you know, even 100, 200 years later, simply these words can be interpreted and twisted by you know sort of shekel-grubbing lawyers and various experts from courts and judges and magistrates i think there's a lot of consideration that needs to go into this and probably this is one of the main monarchist arguments against constitutionalism parliamentary uh, parliamentary monarchy things like that which are trying to be spoon-fed into us at least as orthodox christians and as christians in general who sometimes advocate for monarchy autocracy it's that they say well how about we water it down and introduce a constitution some constitutional laws but as we see with this texas issue Literally, it's a life or death situation for Texans. And you know this is just the beginning. This is just the first wave of migrants. And again, you have constitutional lawyers, experts and judges, even in the, in the Supreme Court itself, who, who are stating that the state itself cannot protect its own personal interests. I mean, this is what we call, I mean, what I've tweeted about calling it civilizational sabotage from the inside. It's happening in America at the moment. And yeah, I g- agree with Conrad, you know, that, you know, th- there is no imminent risk of civil war at the moment, just because I think timeline wise, we're still early on in the year, people returning from holidays, more or less, the the people of America are really relaxed. And I think generally speaking, if this was taking place in October, November, end of 2024, I think things could be escalating out of control. But fortunately for us, the timing is quite perfect. And I think we won't see that sort of deterioration of relations between, you know, the state of Texas and the federal government, I think. And, you know, judging by what Joe Biden's doing at the moment, he's kind of <laughs> Probably got a shot of adrenochrome in the morning. So he's waking up, he's sending letters around. He's actually understanding that something needs to be done or else there's a risk that he will outright lose the presidential race and no amount of electoral machinations will sort of get him out of the situation. So generally speaking, it's it's good that Texas is standing its ground against these waves and hordes of illegal immigrants. And for all those folks arguing that, hey, these are just peaceful Catholic people trying to cross the border. Like, naturally, I think arguments can be made about these the majority of these people being Roman Catholics or Christians. But again why aren't they staying in Mexico, which is, Mexico is not a bad place to live. It's a second world country. It's actually quite comfortable, especially if you're a hardworking person. I think people downplay the Mexican factor, calling it a third world or this criminal ridden. Yes, there are criminal cartels and mafias, but if you're living in one of the main cities, you should be completely fine. I mean, it can't even be compared to a country like Brazil, I think. So there's definitely arguments can be made against this Push by the liberals and liberal Christians, even within the Catholic Church, because this is a major factor. We keep mentioning the fact that the Roman Catholics are this massive conservative group, you know, pushing against illegal immigration. It's exactly the opposite. Roman Catholics are, in fact, these Roman Catholic NGOs, Roman Catholic talk show, essentially, these liberal bishops as well, saying that America should actually let this Roman Catholic illegal immigrant wave into the United States and this would somehow benefit the American population. I don't think that's the case. And I think. The statistics that they have are wrong. I think actually the position of those particular spokespersons from the Roman Catholic Church, the picture that they paint of the Roman Catholic religion at the moment is that it's in a state of complete liberal dysphoria. It is a it is an overall delusion that we see personified in the figure of Pope Francis in recent statements, you know, the pro-gay blessings, things like that. But of course, in relation to border control and migration, we see this across Europe. None of these Catholic countries are actually benefiting from Catholicism's position on Migration in general, let alone illegal immigration. So it's a larger commentary on the actual situation on the ground in America. I think.
0: Well, and you mentioned it, but it's not even really even mostly Mexicans. It's Venezuelans, Ecuadorians, and now Africans coming up from Mexico. Some of them through the Darien Gap, Central America, coming up facilitated by the cartels, Jewish NGOs as well as some Catholic ones, of course. And it's the great replacement. It's it's the intentional replacement of white Europeans in America as the core population. And it's already you know too late. The current population is what, about 57% European white? And that doesn't even necessarily account for the full understanding of illegal immigration in the country. So I mean, there's like tens of millions of illegal immigrants already in the country at this point, with hundreds of thousands coming in every month. And while it does seem that, like you said, we're not headed to civil war because Joe Biden would be committing electoral suicide, at this point, immigration has become the number one issue for voters in 2024, 35% of poll respondents say it's their number one issue in the election, which is obviously a really good sign for Republicans. And Joe Biden, like he said, he sent that letter to the Senate. He seems that he isn't trying to press Border Patrol. Again, the Border Patrol union says they don't even want to cut the wires. So he seems to know he doesn't exactly have full amount of support here. But behind the scenes, he does seem to be working to punish Texas. He doesn't want to Take this sitting down, of course. This is a statement from President Biden. He made a decision to pause pending approvals of liquefied natural gas exports. And like 90% of LNG exports come from Texas. It's one of the biggest points in the Texas economy down in the you know Houston, Galveston industrial energy sector. And this is from Philip Pilkington. He said, Europe was promised LNG by the US after cutting Russian buying. They were lied to. Electoral politics is more important than a core ally, apparently. Biden pulls the LNG terminals, even though Qatari LNG has to take the long route due to red sea attacks and this is obviously going to contribute to the energy war perhaps you know biden wants to keep some lng for america if we're going to be struggling to keep up a reserve but again this would severely damage the texas economy if we weren't allowed to export you know liquefied natural gas so again a lot of people are saying this is a effectively a sanction on texas basically for defying the federal government so Very interesting developments, to say the least. I, again, we don't see this becoming a civil war per se, but it is, the lines are being drawn, you know, let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, I think just conclusive thoughts, like if hypothetically this, say this was to occur or extend somehow, if this crisis was to extend all the way up to the election and it would escalate into like a large scale civil war, and this is completely speculative, most likely won't take place. This would, of course, you know, essentially all the predictions we made over the last year for 2024 would essentially change. The world, the world outlay would change. The China's economy would suffer. The European economy would fall into great stagnation. There'd be a recession. Um, I mean, most world currencies would suffer. Russia would, of course, suffer greatly because, again, the, the, the price of oil and gas would plummet because the demand would also plummet. If America was sent into some civil uh, state of enormous disobedience, shall we call civil war, if we, may, if we must, of course, Mexico would probably get involved as well, at least in some of those border territories, it would be complete chaos and crisis. And unfortunately, I don't think Russia, countries like Russia, would be in a position to militarily take advantage. We will speak about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict in the future, but Russia did not mobilize Any additional troops in 2023. So, as it stands right now, the Russian army is purely in defensive positions. So, if, for example, you would say, well, the U.S. is overextended in its foreign policy and throughout the international waters, what if domestically something was to take place between Texas and the federal government and some other states siding with Texas, like, say, a Civil War 2.0, which would be horrendous on the ground, naturally. But could countries like like Russia and China take advantage of it? I. Doubt that supremely because these countries. I don't think anyone in the world at the moment is prepared. Really, I think we're in the state of preparation. But if if something like this was to be set off very early, at least in 2024, it would. The consequences would be quite dire. I think for everybody involved. None of these countries are ready to take advantage of what potentially could take place in Texas and the U.S. So I think it's actually it would be beneficial if Biden completely capitulates to you know to the cause of the Republicans in this particular moment. Uh, I think it would benefit you know the international players around the world and also it might. So sober up the Biden administration to maybe act with a bit more vigilance, not just domestically, but in his foreign policy, especially uh, in relation to countries like Israel, perhaps, like to soften support and soften all these massive uh, donations that they're giving to the Netanyahu government.
0: Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, Abbott and a lot of these Republican governors, most of them, DeSantis, obviously, they love Israel as well, Abbott. And now he's in India, so, you know, he's full on Zog, Poo and Lu alliance. You know, he's part of that. So that being said, you know, I respect him for at least doing this on the border. And I want to talk about this on the LNG situation. Don Buckingham, the land commissioner of Texas, used to be my state senator. Uh, she said, Texas is the country's largest natural gas exporter and the third largest in the world. This reckless move is nothing more than retaliation against Texas for standing up to this administration over the border. And for this, our favorite, you know, late night tweeter, Dmitry Medvedev tweeted, he posted out on all of his platforms that the formation of the Texas People's Republic is becoming more and more real what i wrote at the end of the year before la- before last in a joking prediction is coming true and he goes on on a whole long spiel on x about you know texit and all of those kinds of things and you know it's a bit you know we there's the potential this year of having texit on the ballot the texas republican party is totally rejecting the legitimate process that was followed over 139,000 signatures were gathered to have texit on the republican ballot this year, and the Republican Party is just refusing to have it. You know, they the process was followed and they should have a question to the people. Should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation? That's the question. And that should be on the ballot based on the amount of signatures, but the party is stonewalling it. So, you know, Texas is moving forward. So be sure to follow the Texas Nationalist Movement and all of them on Twitter and whatnot to support, if you support Texas becoming an independent nation, which would be pretty incredible. But I think we've done The border and Texas justice at this point, I think we have to move on to some other borders, specifically Israel's northern border, as Hezbollah effectively escalates to Hezbollah and Israel, you know, at Israel's behest, it seems, with Netanyahu and the unity government and the war cabinet basically saying that they think the time is now to escalate and start a full-on war and take out hezbollah i mean ben shapiro in his recent debate said that at the very beginning israel should have just gone in and taken out hezbollah so it seems to be the general consensus among among world Jewry that it's up next is hezbollah and it's going to be an even longer bigger war so uh Dimitri, what are your thoughts on the on the widening situation in the holy land
1: I mean, all these calls to actually have Israel move in against Hezbollah and, and Lebanon proper, because it would be a breach of Lebanese sovereignty. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this would be a direct declaration of war. It wouldn't be a peacekeeping operation. Lebanon, as a country, did not declare war on Israel yet. Naturally, Hezbollah is operating on its own accord, sending in drones, using long-range bombardments of IDF positions on the northern border of Israel with. With Lebanon, of course, but th- these calls internally as well as externally through figures such as Ben Shapiro, <laughs> being an American citizen as well as actual Israelis, calling for Israel to take preeminent action, move in a few kilometers deep into Lebanon and actually clear out some of these Hezbollah bases. Primarily, of course, we're talking about like which which exact targets. I think we're we, we're looking at here it was re- recently in the last 24 hours actually military strikes have been carried out against the Hezbollah airstrip. So these are very small airports, are uh, hidden by trees mostly, but positioned. Ri- quite close to the Israeli border, which Hezbollah allegedly is using to actually launch some of its larger drones to enact bombardments on Israeli targets. So, of course, Israel is retaliating by shooting long-range missiles as well as not artillery strikes, but actually using some of its own drones to actually take out these airports and damage them to a point where the airstrip is, the concrete is so destroyed that you simply cannot drive any planes or machines on, on these things for, for quite some time. So naturally, and of course, the demoralization factor is, is there as well that the you know the Lebanese people working around These airstrips will probably move elsewhere because there's always the preeminent chance that, hey, Israel may actually drop a bomb on you. So they're trying to scare the Lebanese people into submitting, moving north away from this border, which it considers its own, its own sort of sezerainty, its own controlled territory. Naturally, I mean, this is like a breach of multiple international laws, sort of statutes. But again, uh, the situation, I think, you know, as Nasrallah described a couple of months ago, the Lebanese Hezbollah people are considering this a holy war, not not a war for Hamas, but a war for all Muslim people to liberate themselves and liberate the Palestinian state, sort of from the river to the sea, so to speak, quote unquote, for sort of promoting the fact that The Lebanese people are standing up for their neighbors in the south. And Israel understands this and they understand that at this point Hezbollah is not going to concede at all. Hezbollah is looking to repeat perhaps what has taken place in 2006 in the war between Israel and Lebanon or Israel and Hezbollah, but to a more favorable extent in Hezbollah's favor. And in fact, Hezbollah has been preparing. I mean, it's been more than 15, it's been almost 20 years since that last conflict which took place between the two countries. And I think Hezbollah has been training, preparing, and has learned many very favorable lessons from that particular uh, conflict. And despite the fact that Israel's army is a lot stronger than Hezbollah, there's still that potential of actually, just like what Hamas is doing, baiting Israel deep into Lebanese territory a few kilometers in And then surrounding them, causing uh, issues, you know, causing disruptions to the logistics lines. And the the IDF has really shown itself a lot weaker than it has been in decades past. I mean, a lot of the IDF conscripts look like they're young men, like it's quite egalitarian. A lot of young women, a lot of uh, people of, shall we say, confused orientation as well. Like there's a lot of people doing weird TikTok dances, people like that. Are these people ready to go? You know several miles into into hostile territory in Lebanon in order to clear out some airstrips and you know, some bunkers of, of the Hezbollah's holding. I kind of doubt that. I think it's it would be a quest which uh, which Israel should probably not undertake at this point. And I think, if anything, Israel should probably seek peace with the Lebanese people in Hezbollah and sort of come to some sort of peace agreement. Generally, this would favor Israel, naturally. But we understand from Netanyahu, from the recent conclusion of the ICJ, and from the Israel's reaction to the ICJ, you know, interim decision that Israel is not looking to actually seek any sort of peace agreement with Hamas, let alone like Hezbollah. They're incredibly stubborn. And the chief stubborn person at the at the point is Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's actually leading the charge into Israel's national, you can call it a national suicide at this point.
0: And while we are seeing pullbacks from Gaza, specifically Gaza City and whatnot, we are seeing, however, some of the fiercest fighting since the beginning of Israel's ground operation into the Strip in Khan Yunus at this point, parts farther south, so the entire Strip, of course, wants to be cleared out. Listen to our episode last week with Jim Jatris. We talk about the Philadelphia Corridor and the dispute with Egypt and Israel and how Israel wants to control part of the border with Egypt and effectively have some jurisdiction on what is effectively Egyptian territory, which... The Egyptians do not accept, so this whole thing is still very hot between all the Islamic neighbors. There is some talk about UAE or Saudi-controlled Gaza Strip in the future, which I think the Israelis would love, but of course that's not really going to be accepted by the wider Muslim world at this point. And of course the broader Iranian crescent, the Shia crescent, whether it's the Houthis or Hezbollah or the Islamic resistance in Iraq, And then the Syrian forces as well have been launching missiles. Recently you have a report that the Houthis on Surah have successfully struck a UK chemical ship, I think it was hauling oil, the Marlin Luanda, which there's videos of it on fire and I've seen purported videos now confirmed of it sinking into the sea. So this could be a, a bit of an escalation, which again, we have seen the US strike hundreds of sites across Yemen at this point, despite the fact that the White House vehemently denies being at war with the Houthis, you know, it's... It's definitely an aerial bombardment war to a certain degree that in coalition with Operation Prosperity Guardian, it's a pretty serious not war to say the least. But the Houthis don't seem to be backing down. And of course, Hezbollah, they've launched Iranian-made third-generation ATGM Almas 3, which are much more substantial rockets than Israel has been dealing with from Hamas since the beginning of this war. Like These things can really strike at longer distances and can carry much more ordnance, so Hezbollah is bringing out, you know, the bigger guns quite literally. And it does appear that some of the pullout from Gaza City is about, and this has been stated by Israeli authorities, relocating them to the northern front and preparing for the widening of this conflict. And the bombardment of southern Lebanon is a constant. They want the people to clear out, not because they want to prevent civilian casualties, but because they want all of this region, you know, closer to the current Israeli borders and farther and farther out. Like we said in the last episode, from the Nile to the Euphrates. They want people cleared out. They want Arabs, Goyim, Christians, Muslims, mostly Christians, of course, cleared out from this region. And they want it to be a solely Jewish state. And the fact that Ben-Gavir and Netanyahu have explicitly stated that they do want Jewish supremacy and Jewish Israeli security control over the Gaza Strip and the West Bank proves that they're always the maximalists of what they think they can get you know they're not going to spill the spaghetti on everything like even though they do like to put up greater israel maps with their finance minister and when other kahanists like to do things they totally show like their actual aspirations but netanyahu and others they you know they they always say like oh no we're just in the realms of this you know west bank gossip has to say for us we want this but the moment they get that you know it's going to be well actually you know this territory you know actually you know sinai we really do need you know well actually you know southern lebanon you know it's always going to be more never enough so this idea that Again, even the Palestinians don't want a Palestinian two-state solution at this point. They recognize that it's a one-state solution for either side at this point, which of course does not bode well for ceasefire in the near future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we do see countries like Saudi Arabia, of course, contributing to this war against the Houthis and Ansar Allah. Naturally, at this point, Saudi Arabia has been shooting down Houthi missiles headed for Israel. We've mentioned that a few weeks ago. But the new inclusion of Saudi Arabian contribution to this massive coalition was positioning long range artillery along its border in the north. And as the US, France, and the UK send its bombers and, of course, shoot missiles from their ships onto specific Houthi targets in Yemen, Saudi Arabia contributes by shooting long range artillery. Artillery from the Saudi Arabian border into Yemen itself. So again, of course, this artillery doesn't shoot that far. These missiles, you know, they fly several uh, tens, if not hundreds, of kilometers at most. But we have, do have, still have to consider that Saudi Arabia is quietly, not really announcing it, but still taking this position of being a very strong U.S. ally. Like, let's not forget that Donald Trump and Saudi Arabia did sign the largest arms deal, the second largest arms deal in human history since World War II, the Lend-Lease. Of course, this Saudi Arabian arms deal, in total, it's it's supposed to equate to something of a 300 billion American dollars in in a decade of trade. So Saudi Arabia by 2030 will be one of the most armored countries in, in the Middle East, I would say, if, if not the entire world. Its its military uh, capacity will should theoretically increase to some enormous capacity. So that's what we kind of need to expect, Saudi Arabia's position on this conflict and how it exactly develops. Naturally, especially given the Condemnation of the ICJ and further developments in Europe, the slowing down of the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. Now that all the eyes of the world, despite this particular you know Texas situation, are essentially on the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. Really, the Crown Prince himself and the King of Saudi Arabia that do need to answer for their stance on. Given the fact that they have Mecca and Medina, the two sort of Islamic holy sites, they do have to answer for the Muslim world as their as a sort of caretakers of that particular religion and that particular world region. So it'll be very interesting to see exactly how their position progresses, considering the fact that, well, Islam has received quite a bad rap over the last few decades, you know, being accused of predominantly being responsible. And we're talking about Salafists and Wahhabists in general, but also like Al-Qaeda and other CIA-supported groups such as ISIS. But Islam has been... You know the main the main sort of recipient of accusations of terrorist acts, and frankly, Conrad noticed this. Right, seventh of October occurs, and naturally, this is called like a large terrorist action. But it almost looked like a military act, if anything. But since that point, despite the fact that the U.S. presence against Houthis, against you know supporting supporting Israeli bombardment of Palestinians, we've seen I think if anything, a very controlled. Some of these very honorable Islamic organizations like Hezbollah, Hamas, we've seen a very controlled situation. We don't see any suicide bombings we don't see any extreme crazy terrorist acts across western countries in the US in Europe in Russia things like that things like even that we didn't even
0: no we just see we just see Israel and the US activating ISIS and then immediately you know exactly. suicide bombing killing 70 plus people in Iran you know all sorts of stuff like that and of course what did Joe Biden do recently. One of the first things he did as president was delist the Houthis as a terrorist organization. And now they're back on the terrorist (laughs) list so that they can be, you know, bombed harder and harder. And again, I understand that there's a more justifiable on the world stage interest in protecting shipping and world trade and whatnot. But again, tell Israel to stop bombing all the areas around it. Don't, you know, you punish the Houthis, there's other powers that want to use their leverage to hold up world trade and do other things while Israel does this. You can stop all of that by reigning in Israel, right? So it's a, it's definitely a, it just, it just totally betrays where the loyalty really lies.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think this is, uh this is just one of those things that I think every Muslim in the world, those who still adhere to real traditional Sunni Shia values really need to internalize and understand that the last 20, 30 years there's been enormous machinations and manipulations of Islam through these Western and Mossad sources. I mean, that's just the conclusion they need to come to and that Islam has been used as this battering ram, not even against Western countries, but against themselves first and foremost in order to support this project of a greater I- Israel. And we were Orthodox Christians. We, we were kind of on the sidelines. Just watching this take place and watching this progress kind of, you know, over the last 30 years, we're kind of watching this massive scenario play out in the Middle East. And now at this point, we're personally involved as recipients of collateral damage and as the victims, as, you know, St. Porphyria's Church and various other monasteries and potentially even more targets if this war between hezbollah and israel escalates these there's a lot of christians living in lebanon as we remember from the lebanese civil war a lot of christians suffered from what took place in those areas and even more unfortunately will be suffered and probably will be targeted by the idf if they enter into lebanon you know in a full-on preliminary confrontation with hezbollah and against the lebanese armed forces it will be uh, very tragic and very dangerous i think for inter shall we say interreligious uh, relations in that middle east area
0: And again, we've seen certain specifically Maronite Catholics much more siding with the Lebanese authorities who some say would even be willing to side with Israel against Hezbollah. So the factionalism goes very deep. But we're going to move towards Russia, Ukraine at this point. Of course, things have not been dying down there. It's just World War III is spreading. So it's harder to keep up with every front, right? But between this huge plane being shot down with, what was it, 67 Ukrainian POWs or 50-plus Ukrainian POWs, 60-plus Total people on board dead in this huge crash shot down by American or French missiles from Ukrainian ground sources. And then there's been severe civilian bombings of Donetsk. The intensity and it kind of seems like desperation and slow, like again, just kind of consequence of the collapse and desperation of the Ukrainian regime. Dmitry, what's kind of the background on these these incidents?
1: I think what really shows the, the breakdown of Ukrainian internal communications, right? This illusion, Il 76 massive... It's not a cargo plane. It's a troop transportation plane. But in this particular case, it was carrying specifically neo-Nazi POWs, right? Let's just call it what they are. A lot of them were members of the Azov Battalion, troops captured for a long time ago. And they were actually, the plane was traveling near the Belgorod, Ukraine, Kharkov border. So very, pretty dangerous territory. But nevertheless, this massive plane was in the air. It doesn't have, the plane actually does not have any defenses or missiles on it. So essentially, it even looks like a commercial, like a small commercial airliner for all sorts. If you even Google the image of an Ilyushin plane. And yes, it had all those... Neo-Nazi POWs on board, and Ukraine essentially just shot it down. And of course, the plane, because of its so large, once the anti missile did hit the plane, the pilots very bravely commanded the plane and controlled it into the ground, away from any. It essentially, it exploded in the forest, and not it didn't fly into Belgorod or any populated village or anything of that sort. So yeah, the, the Russian pilots were heroes in that capacity. They knew the plane was going to go down. There's no escape. It's not like you know, it's not a movie. You can't jump out of a parachute once the plane's hit like like that everything's jammed and essentially it's just death is almost inevitable and guaranteed so and instead of naturally like let's see how did the ukrainians react to this because it's their own people their own elite sort of Azov battalion those you know crazed neo-nazi pagans who they kept promoting in their media over the last year and a half and even like we'd say 10 years at this point since 2014 how did zelensky and his people react to the death of these so-called slavo Ukrainian heroes well they didn't react at all at first they said well wow we shot the plane down. Yes, they are their POWs, they're traitors. It's like, okay. And then they denied this. And now the official version is, well, maybe we did shoot them down, but it's because the Russians intentionally flew the plane over our territory. So we were kind of baited into it. So the version keeps changing and we don't see any mourning whatsoever from Zelensky or any of the Ukrainian officials. No one's mourning the loss of their own elite soldiers, shall we say. So this whole position that Ukrainians actually care, or the Ukrainian government actually cares about its own prisoners, its own uh, its own people, I think completely scatters. There's no, and even Metropolitan Epiphany, Patriarch Philaret, right, these these false schismatic hierarchs of the Ukrainian Church, none of them have held any funeral, any mourning services for these dead POWs who and and they were all confirmed dead because we saw really gnarly footage of like the plane crash and in the forest and the russian Russian forensic squads have already arrived on the scene in the Belgorod oblast and they've actually inspected. You can see there's arms and legs lying around. And a lot of these Ukrainian soldiers that actually had like, shall we say, like neo-Nazi tattoos, a lot of them runes, wolves angels, swastikas, black sons, and you can actually tell who they belong to. It's like, okay, well, this is clearly a Ukrainian neo-nazi and these are like his body parts right here i mean this is quite gnarly but it's quite obvious that a lot of the victims were ukrainians and where's the mourning? where's the i mean from the ukrainian position it's just absent Meanwhile, I compare this to how the Russians reacted to the criminal bombardment of Donetsk on the 25th of January of the Donetsk. Literally, it was a Sunday after church. People went to coffee hour in in the city of Donetsk, right? Abdiyevka is being a stage. So the risk of the Donetsk bombardment is quite low at this point. And the people in Donetsk went to the marketplace to sort of sell goods, you know, just like you'd go, you'd go out, just hang out with your family. And the Ukrainians lobbed a long range artillery strike right all over. And this is probably a high Mars of some sort. You know, these things can fire from hundreds. Of kilometers away, they shot this right in the city, in the center of Donetsk. They hit a street market with zero troops. Of course, no military targets, and they killed outright twenty-seven or twenty-eight Donetsk residents—men, women, babushkas, people just literally coming out of church, killed, including children as well. And I think as many as fifty people are injured at the moment. The Metropolitan of Donetsk at the moment, just like Metropolitan John of Belgorod, who was you know present in the hospital after the bombardment of belgrade just a few weeks ago in early 2024, is now with the people in the hospital. But again, it's just a tragedy. Look at the, of course, the Russians are reacting like in a very controlled, patient fashion. They're mourning for their losses and they understand that this is a particular war crime. The Ukrainians, instead of doing that, They're just blaming their own POW troops for surrendering to the Russian side and they don't really care that 60 plus people, their own soldiers, have died despite the fact that they were neo-Nazis and whatnot but they don't even care about their own troops. So I think this really paints a picture of exactly how the war has mentally and I would say morally destroyed certain factions in the war, especially I would say on the Ukrainian end. I think people are tired of the war and some people have just been dehumanized, right? Like internally they just morally cannot comprehend the loss of their own people and it's not even a Tragedy anymore. They've seen so much death that even you know, 60 people dying in a plane crash is no longer a significant event.
0: No, it's a real tragedy, and it shows that it's not going to be pretty necessarily as Ukraine goes down. You know, there might be some pretty sad outbursts, some pretty unfortunate, I guess, casualties and collateral damage that come with the fall of this you know propped up zombie regime. But speaking of tragedy again, not quite as dramatic or depressing of a tragedy, but a tragedy nonetheless. In the midst of the upcoming Russian presidential elections, one of our favorite characters, Igor Strelkov, Igor Gyrkin, has been sentenced to four years in prison. And we've been following this case for a while. We've been following him and been fans before his arrest, of course. And this is an unfortunate development. And, of course, it is said that he can appeal in six months, which would be when the election is all done with and whatnot, which we're hoping that that will actually happen and he'll be able to apply, be paroled and actually, you know, be a free man once again. But this is an unfortunate development, of course, and as far as the presidential election goes, we all know Putin is going to win and it, it's a bit of an exciting development because once this kind of hurdle of entering into his, well, I believe, what is it, an unprecedented is a sixth term or whatever it is, he will be kind of officially entering into the stage where he must be considering, you know, the, the succession question and who will come after him. So maybe within this term we'll get some answers on that. But Dimitri, what what do we think is gonna be happening to our good friend Mr. Geerkin?
1: So at the moment Igor Adelkov is sitting in a fairly comfortable prison all things considered despite the fact that he does have a heart condition so he's not necessarily eligible to sign up for the armed forces you know in the prison battalion you know or like some sort of Wagner prisoner unit Um, he's not actually going to be doing that given the fact that he's over 50 and he does have these debilitating factors health wise right so he is taking tablets for his heart condition so he'd actually there's an f- excuse for him not to be actually be involved on the front line so a lot of people are commenting well now he can actually join the armed forces again and it's like uh no he was actually a lot more useful uh, as an analyst online, giving us the the scoop on a lot of these occurrences in Russia from a very patriotic right-wing perspective. And an Orthodox one, that, mind you, he's a, he's a very pious Orthodox Christian, and he has been for at least 20 years since the late 1990s, which is, I would say quite a long time considering the absence of catechism for a lot of these soviet people who grew up in the union but let's just consider like Igor get a steel they've gave him four years of prison with possibility of parole after i believe six months which roughly aligns with i would say the end of the probably a little bit soon after easter he would be able to apply for parole through his lawyers and attorneys and he could essentially be released on good on good conditions maybe he could maybe they'll put on some restrictions and some uh conditions on his release, such as he can't post anything on social media or something like that, or he can't run any Telegram accounts. Who knows, right? But it is good news. So he's sitting in Matrosko Tshinna, which is a pretty comfortable prison Moscow-wise. You know, I, I know a few people sitting there at the moment, and you are given like televisions, uh, books to read, comfortable like Adidas tracksuit pants, things like that. So it's not like the world, it's not like a Siberian Shizor type prison where we saw a lot of people get sent for similar uh, cases and for Section 282. Remind you, he's sitting in prison for essentially a law against hate speech you know not hate speech but extremism shall we say to section 282 is pretty extreme so russia so yeah americans you guys are you guys are very lucky at the moment because you do have you know the first amendment so the freedom freedom of speech which i think let's not take that for granted at the moment americans can actually speak their mind criticize biden criticize a lot of what's happening without actually being held accountable for their words in a legal capacity so i think that's one of the main benefits of the american constitution but so Igor Stilkov right I think after I agree with you Conrad after the election there's a high chance he'll be granted parole and he'll be released which is a really good thing but generally this is a very negative thing because it paints the Russian legal system and the prosecutorial system as something of a fifth column and you know Alexander Dugin Mollethev figures like this have been speaking about a potential fifth column in the Russian government bureaucratic system for a long time and we've been describing this fifth column as this you know as like a deep swamp in Russia and perhaps those maybe those people are really aligned with the liberals but at this point it looks like like the swamp, maybe even masquerading as like patriots, perhaps maybe the deep swamp is actually the chief prosecutor's office of Russia, as well as maybe some of the attorney generals sitting there. Who knows? Like at this point, I'm looking at there's probably any possibility who is involved in the Russian deep swamp, similar to how during the Trump administration, a lot of his actions were stifled and you know put down by internal sabotage from some of the people who we thought were patriots and weren't liberals, but then turned you know turned into these members, these various heads of the large, uh, you know, so shall we say, Masonic Judean Emersonic Hydra so in Russia, I think it's a similar situation. It's like Putin himself puts Stilkov behind bars. I think people try and trying to sabotage Putin's image amongst patriots by sentencing Stadilkov, the judge, the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor, the attorney general. There are people involved in you know responsible, and there's a chance Putin doesn't even know this is taking place, mind you. There's a chance he's not even listening or watching the news that closely. I think he's reading military government reports. So to blame Putin for this particular occurrence of Stadilkov, I think is a little bit, I think it's shooting a little bit early, and we're just have to keep that in mind. So it's not like a Putin versus Trelkov moment. It's more like there's a fifth column inside of Russia, which is trying to sabotage the orthodox patriotic uprising by taking care of people like Prigozhin and Wagner and even putting Strelkov behind bars. So there's really, uh, there's a fight within Russia itself, a fight for Russia's future, which I think will become a lot more explicit moving into the future. And at the moment, it's really tight, closely involved with the SMO and what's happening in Ukraine. But as that develops further, I think, yeah, we'll see some interesting developments. And I just want to mention, let's talk about Boris Spiegel, famous Russian Judeo, shall we say, Israeli Russo-Israeli oligarch who actually got sentenced at the same time as Terekov to 11 years of prison. He's a former Russian senator, and he was charged with corruption for uh, embezzling funds during the COVID pandemic, as well as selling some very dodgy anti-COVID medication and being, you know, involved in that whole vaccine scheme scheme in Russia in 2021. So a very famous, I guess, one of the only openly Jewish, openly Israeli. The Russian oligarchs was sentenced to 11 years in prison for COVID machination. It's almost like a dream come true. I mean, if not for the Strelkovs, it would be like, well, it would be a great week that finally, you know, there's a crackdown on these weird Kabad type oligarchs and elites in Russia. And this man... For you know, contributing to the various issues in Russian culture throughout the decades, and at this point even making money from the COVID pandemic, you know, from the poor Russian people, has now you know has now finally been sentenced and put away. So this is uh, really good news, and I guess bad news for Boris Spiegel that maybe he can learn a thing or two in prison.
0: Yeah, I mean he of course was the head of the Finnish Anti-Fascist Committee, all sorts of random Jewish organizations like, you know, the Russian Jewish Federation Council, you know, all sorts of different organizations that we've talked about on some of the episodes on Ether Hour in the past, like our episode about the Russian deep state But when it comes to other prisoners that have been sentenced and are languishing in Russian prison, I guess. There also have been recent developments about Navalny, who a few weeks back we reported has gone missing, but he's back, you know, his location is known again, and he's complaining about every morning the prison plays that shaman song, I'm Russian, and he has to wake up to that, so that's that's where Navalny is at. But of course, pray for the servant of God, Igor. We hope that Strelkov can be out on the streets in six months, and again, you're right, he probably won't be returning to Telegram anytime soon, but we would still like to hear his commentary because he's one of the few people that understands the, the World War Now perspective. He talks about the drift towards conflict with Turkey, the Third World War, how the fronts in the Caucasus in Syria can all lead to all of these sorts of things. You know, he's very much on the same wavelength as we are here. So we would love to get some more of his commentary. But unless uh, you have anything else to say about that, Dimitri, we should probably discuss some of the likely offensive stuff with Russia before we move to the rest of Europe
1: yeah, I think at the moment, look, we're we're looking at a very, very close slowing down, right? as you know, we're already past the middle point of winter at this point in Russia and Eastern Europe. It's looking like the Russian Federation is going to slow down its offensive in the SMO, focusing primarily just on the defensive positions it's holding now, as well as this, you know, long-suffering town of Avdeevka, which Russia has been sieging for a little while, and the Ukrainians are holding, to, you know, similar to Bakhmut, till the last man, so to speak, in very uh, stubborn fashion at this point. But Avdeevka is the only target we're looking at the, that the Russians will probably take prior to the election, which roughly aligns with the beginning of Great Lent, so about uh, 16th, of 16, 17th of March, 2024. So that's when the presidential election in Russia will be announced, and that's when it will be completed. I believe the Ukrainian election is in April. So we're looking at that particular time frame. and before then, probably no major developments will take place in the front lines. Perhaps, of course, there may be some strengthening of the borders between Kharkov and Belgorod. Again, I doubt Russia will be, you know, taking on any massive operations of surrounding Harkov or doing anything crazy like that. But there will be militias organized. The militias have already been organized in the belgorodsky oblast, which is, this is the northern are uh, very deep and dense forests, which need to be patrolled. But the Russian soldiers, simply, there's not enough people to cover. I mean, we're talking about the Texas border, right? There's, there's a Russo-Ukrainian border, which Ukrainian extremists have been crossing for a few months now and sometimes you know, causing terrorist acts and things on Russian territory. So these borders need to be controlled as well by, you know, Russia doesn't have National Guard, it does, but there's simply not enough people to actually control this vast, dense area. So they're actually arming militia, local Russian militias, to take care of these particular defensive positions, which I think that will be the development on that front. So at this point, it looks like despite all these provocational strikes against Belgorod Donetsk, the shooting down of this prisoner warplane, I think Russia will be very steadfast and a hold strong and really kind of not fall to any provocations, especially prior to this presidential election. Because at this point, Putin has not actually shown us any sign that there is a successor being prepared. And nobody has been, nobody has received enough PR to actually be labeled politically as a successor. And this is important because Putin himself in his early presidential races in like 2003, for example, he suffered greatly by being pressured by both communists, the LDPR, Shcherinovsky's party, a lot of people actually There was a chance Putin was going to lose one of his early elections, right, if not for some of the people behind him in early United Russia, once Yeltsin actually passed on power to Putin. So if Putin didn't prove himself early on, it was going to be very hard for him. But naturally, he now cemented himself as a strong leader and without a proper succession in place and without a proper transition and even a preparation in the eyes of the media, in the eyes of the Russian boomer population of a successing figure i'm not sure if we if the transition will be as smooth as we'd hope it would be for russia at the moment even if russia remains in the semi-dictatorial bureaucratic state which it is in right now where it's kind of it presents itself as a democracy but in very fact it's just the strong Siloviki right-wing conservative and very greatly Orthodoxing. shall we say like it's uh they're really the orthodoxy is increasing let's just say steadfast in this russian bureaucratic system so that's a good thing but without a successor it doesn't look too good. So Putin's hopefully will stay in power for the next six years or so and kind of prepare the country for whatever's next to come. And hopefully that thing will be, as we've spoken about, preparation for a future Orthodox rise and maybe uh, better things like that in terms of we're speaking about the political sphere.
0: No, I agree. And I think as far as Ukraine goes, it seems that both parties are starting to look outside of Ukraine, unfortunately, as the conflict is kind of broadening in that regard. Of course, we have the chair of the NATO Military Committee, Dutch Admiral Robert Bauer. He warned recently, he said, Peace is not guaranteed. We are preparing for a war with Russia and its terrorist groups. Maybe not tomorrow, but certainly within the next 20 years. People should be prepared for the first 36 hours. So, quite a dramatic, you know, kind of spooky statements from him. This is all in the midst of Sweden just entering NATO, Turkey, the parliament approved it. So, it's all said and done at this point that Sweden, on top of Finland now, will be entering NATO. So, that's all of Scandinavia in NATO now. They all joined NATO before they even joined the EU. So. Interesting advancement there. And in the midst of all of this as well, General Sir Patrick Sanders, the British, I believe, head of the military, said, if we go to war with Russia, we could find that our youth may have to be conscripted. So this bizarre shift towards these British, these European military leaders, all kind of, we heard it in Sweden a few weeks back as well, other places, Germany has been saying it, Olaf Scholz has talked about it. So I guess there might have come some news from America that, hey, you guys need to be prepared to take Russia on on your own and distract on this flank while we take on China or while we, you know, if you think about certain things going a certain way or while we fight an internal civil conflict here in the United States between the states or whatever it is that may happen in a 10-year timeline between the federal government and other power structures. But it does seem that these European countries are still vassalized completely and would be willing on their own regard to fight against russia which is truly unfortunate development but the the populist right-wing movements that will only boost them i mean that prospect of war will only boost the rising right-wing dissidents and identitarians across europe of course the afd is surging in every poll across germany and the, the cosmopolitan libtards of germany are freaking out they're like no no you can't talk about deporting migrants you're you're doing a heckin' fascarino and that's not allowed so the heads of the afd had started talking about you know remigration and re- deporting and sending certain migrants home especially those that had committed crimes and the pre- people of germany just they just saw swastikas everywhere the moment they heard that and just freaked out so in the midst of this of course there's the german farmers and the french farmers who were really rising up there was proposed tax increases in the french legislature and the french farmers really went all out they burned down prefecture police buildings they covered prefecture buildings in poop they mobilized en masse and then the legislature backed down they're not going to increase those taxes and the german farmers are doing similar protests and are pledging you know some pretty radical action and are even it seems that the real fear is that these people will all these farmers will unite with the afd and completely increase the rural vote that the afd is already getting so And all of this does bode well for future Russia-European relations, but again, they're already talking about just banning the AFD altogether, as we've discussed in the past. Germany isn't really a real country, it's just a vassal of the United States and exists effectively to, like the government and the constitution there exist to prevent any kind of right-wing dissident or German identitarian movement from rising up in any capacity. So it's really, you know, it's really going to be what the U.S. ultimately and the intelligence communities and the deep states here decide they want to do with these parties. But it would be very interesting to see what happens if some massive electoral victory for the AFD occurs in Germany.
1: Yeah, we have to, like, you know, just keep in mind countries like Poland, Germany, France, they actually supported Zelensky banning some of the conservative right wing parties in Ukraine, the alternative parties like the Party of the Regions, which was very popular in Lugansk, Donetsk, and it was banned. You know, uh, at the beginning of the SMO, completely, uh, you know, all the deputies, as who are members of it, were kicked out of the parliament. We have to just consider that these countries, such as Germany, actually supported that move, and they thought it was a it was a good idea. So there is the potential that the AFD, if there's enough popular support, the Chancellor Scholz does see that you know he could make this populist move, and you know, you know, actually against the AFD and, and the Conservatives in Germany to actually uh, outlaw some of these parties just because of right wing, you know, threats of right wing extremism, which we're seeing at these. I mean, look, these uh, these phantom fears of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich are going to do these the German people a great service of injustice, I think, generally, because the German people at the moment need to look out for themselves. They've been stripped of their rights in terms of uh, commercial trade. They've been harassed over the Nord Stream pipelines. They've been forced by their own government to give their taxpayer, you know, Deutsch dollars and euros to, to Ukraine. And at the moment, even their domestic rights to actually vote for various parties, like they're being harassed. Can you imagine in Germany, if you're like... Uh, say, some, going to university and you're voting for the AFD, what kind of pressure is being placed? on because, again, universities in Germany are, again, dominated by mostly liberal academic crowd who are still teaching people about, you know, the uh, issues surrounding the Holocaust and things that which are like 80, 90 years away. I mean, I understand countries need to remember their history, but let's just be real. How does this impact the reality on the ground? And the only time we've seen Chancellor Scholz and the German you know, powers that be the status quo powers speak out against the mass illegal and the mass just mass legal immigration into Germany was during the Palestinian anti-Israeli protest when Scholz said, well, we're going to have to look at deporting maximum 10,000 people whose values don't align with ours out of Germany. 10,000 people a year. That's and that's like after months and months of legal process. And that's really I mean, let's just let's just face the facts. I think with uh, expedited legal action, a lot more people can be potentially shall we say, kicked out of Germany if they break certain laws, right? I'm not going to comment any further, but I think this particular immigrant crisis which Germany is facing, we've, we've seen it in France, Sweden, the increased crime rates. This is one of the primary crises that Germany is facing at the moment, not the rising of the far right, not the return to Hitlerism and the, these phantom you know, phantom theories of a the Third Reich. If anything, German conservatism is more, as we mentioned, Conrad, centered around the Second Reich and maybe some, you know, potential return to a Kaiserian, maybe uh, like a return to more of its Holy Roman Imperial lineage rather than anything reminiscent of you know, of Nazi Germany. And yet Nazi Germany is still being used as the, as the sort of figurehead movement, which all blame will be placed on. It's just very peculiar. And of course, the main issue, which again is mass immigration in Germany, the subversion of German culture and the complete destruction of German internal autonomy and sovereignty. I think that's the that's not being spoken about. Instead, all, all attention is being diverted to the Russian threat or the threat of Russian incursion and potential World War III escalation through Ukraine and the support needed to that needs to be given to Zelensky, who of course Zelensky, given that he's a he's a member of the so-called chosen tribe he needs to be supported unquestionably so these things are incredibly concerning i really feel for the german people at the moment because they're between a rock and a hard place and it doesn't look like it can get any better Unless, of course, the people, the farmers, the people in the cities, the actual bourgeois stand up for their rights as sovereign conservative citizens, similar to those, of course, now in prison for their QAnon conspiracies, those who followed uh, Prince Royce. People like that, we need more movements like that in Germany to return this country to a state in which it was you know, centuries and even, even maybe even 50 or 60 years ago.
0: Well, and I think the Germans, the Reichsburgers, you know, I think they are in many ways kind of having their own rural, you know, you have the kind of Trump revolution in America, and on a smaller scale, there's all these scary news stories about how in Germany, the Reichsburgers are forming communes and compounds and buying land and starting schools and Forming an alternative society, so power to you. Uh, I was going to say Burger Bros, but that that means Americans. So power to you, uh, Reich. Power to you, Reich Bros. But <laughs> German, you know, the stuff sounds cool. You know, there's no denying it. But yeah, the European situation is. I mean, like you said, in the post, when we were talking about Texas. You know, it seems that Biden is more concerned with punishing Texas for not letting enough brown people flood into the country, as opposed to just providing Europeans with basic energy needs that they need to take on. Since completely alienating and cutting off Russia at the behest of the United States. So the Europeans really need to reconsider the one-way alliance with the U.S. and be like, man, would the Russians be treating us this way? Because I think there's a good chance that they wouldn't if similar situations were happening in reverse. So much to ponder from the European perspective. But going a little bit south in Europe, some big news happening in Greece amidst the church, of course. The Ecumenical Patriarchate came out with a statement against gay marriage. We'll maybe read a few details on that in a second, but the even more exciting news is that Mount Athos, in a collective statement, of course, I think we discussed this briefly, previously they said that they will not be formally welcoming Archbishop Elpidophoros of Go Arch in a formal reception that they usually do for bishops who visit the Holy Mountain, and each monastery was left to act under its own discretion effectively, and Karakalu Monastery, one of the most traditional conservative monasteries that you know refuses anything to do with the schismatics in ukraine and and refuse to do any of the nonsense with covid of course they refuse to give him any kind of formal greeting there's rumors that he even was forced to wait outside the gate for 30 plus minutes and just nobody came to greet him or anything like that so the Holy Mountain is showing its disapproval to Elpidiforos, and recently, with a different bishop, I can't remember his name, the bishop stated that when it comes to homosexual people who have children who adopt children, that the church will wait till those people turn 18 and then baptize them when they want to under their own volition, and Elpidiforos said he totally agreed. So he basically walked back his opinion on the gay baptism and whatnot, which it shows you that this power of, you know, this sort of reprimand from the Holy Mountain and that unity in the monastic world can really have an effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, the El Pelophorus is... You know, visit to Mount Athos. I think it just underlines that yes, certain monasteries didn't greet him, and he strategically it wasn't just him alone. There was a large group of pilgrims from America actually came with him. So I think it was quite nice generally for the monks to actually greet this group of pilgrims who probably came there for their own spiritual health and well-being and actually grasping some of the holiness that can be obtained on the on the mountain in terms of grace and things like that. So Archbishop Vapidoforos, you know, shall we say, chief amongst sinners, isn't that the sort of people that need to go to Mount Athos in the first place without promoting sort of the general values? I mean, probably, but again, he's he's a bishop. There's a lot more responsibility on him, an archbishop at that, and probably one of the foremost Greek archbishops in the world. So his particular scandalous acts, it's a good thing that the Athenite monks have spoken out against him. But what happened after this pilgrimage is even more interesting. So I'm just gonna, we're going to read this straight out of orthochristian.com. So the Archbishop Elpidophorus and the pilgrim, pilgrimage group then left the Holy Mountain and returned to Thessaloniki, where on January 28th, he is set to deliver a keynote address at an event commemorating the day of the jewish martyrs of the holocaust during this event he will be honored with the title of an honorary member of the jewish community of thessaloniki this is reported by the orthodox times i don't know if this requires any additional commentary i'm sure the 28th of january has plenty of orthodox christian saints if i would just open the Orthodox new calendar or the old calendar, it's probably a lot more important people, I mean, in our own faith to commemorate rather than some, again, an event which took place 80, 90 years ago, which again, what relation does that have to Orthodox Christianity? I'm not too sure, okay? Again, very this is all. I mean, Holocaust,
0: right? It means burnt offering. What do you, I mean, this is I, I would argue this is similar to the the Hindu situation that Bishop Athenagoras had to apologize for, because I mean the Holocaust, it means burnt offering, it's this whole religious significance now in the Jewish faith, you know, the you know, the, the killers of Christ, it's an integral part now of their culture and religion. So to participate in this is it's like honoring false martyrs, I would say, especially in the midst of all of this. And sure we appreciate that I was gonna read the exact quote. Uh, Archbishop Jerome, he said, the church will wait for these children to reach an age when they grow up and wish to be baptized and they will be baptized. And Archbishop Elpidophoros said, I absolutely agree with what his beatitude has said, which again, that's positive. But of course, Elpidophoros, he can't say something good without immediately going and uh, doing something extremely cringe as well.
1: Yeah, I think, look, it's just, it's a matter of fact, these people are obsessed with virtual signaling. You're obsessed with naturally looking good in the eyes of the powers of the world. If if myself, Conrad, and a lot of the listeners here, be it laity, clergy, we actually know what's happening. You know, we, we have a good grasp of history, a good grasp of political relations. We've lived on this earth for maybe a couple of decades at most, right? We actually understand what what the powers of the world are, who you cannot criticize, and who exactly holds certain leverage in the world community today. And yes, appealing to these particular people by attending their various secular and like weird paganistic feasts is, I think, not the way to go, especially if you're an archbishop of the Orthodox Church. Maybe that's just my silly layman's opinion, but yet I, I think I hold to it. There's a lot more great Orthodox feasts, which could be probably celebrated, and a lot better places to go for pilgrimage. I mean, it's Thessaloniki. You can visit Saint this Church of St. Demetrius the Great Martyr, for example. There's so many monasteries and churches around Thessaloniki who'd love to have an archbishop serve there for a weekend. Be it a Saturday or something. I mean, come on! Like, what what is going on here? It's similar to just I remember the story of um, Metropolitan uh, Saint Agafangel Yaroslavsky, who actually sat in gulags in the 1920s for like several. He's one of the few martyrs who. I mean, he he's not a martyr. He's a confessor, but he passed away without actually getting shot during the Stalinist years of persecution in the USSR. And when he went to his spiritual mother, Saint Xenia of Rybinsk, and actually asked her, Saint Xenia, should I? side with Metropolitan Sergius Targorodsky and support the Soviet authorities. And she said, she looked at him and she said, look, my son, if you, you're a bishop, but if you agree to side of Metropolitan Sergius and start, you know, serving the Soviet government, all the grace which you've gained through all those sentences and hard labor and the gulags and the prisons and all that confessorship on the grace that you've picked up through your suffering for Christ, all of that will be for naught. You will lose it all. And this is probably a good story from St. Agafon life that can maybe be, uh, maybe that could be analogous to what we see here. It's like, yes, you visit Mount Athos, one of the holiest places on the planet, right? You obtain all this grace. And the first thing you do is you visit an event celebrating the Shoah. in in the city of St. Demetrius of Thessaloniki. I mean, I don't know. I don't think anything else needs to be said about this particular event. Just incredibly unfortunate.
0: So I want to just quickly read the statement from the Synod of Constantinople, the Ecumenical Patriarchate. They say, The Holy and Sacred Synod convened under the esteemed chairmanship of His All-Holiness Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew during its session on Wednesday, January twenty fourth, 2024, which is to address the devout faithful of the Ecumenical Throne regarding the ongoing discourse on the institutionalization of same-sex marriage and adoption in Greece. We reiterate the binding decision of the Holy and Great Council of the Orthodox Church convened in Crete in June 2016. The council unequivocally stated that the church does not accept for its members unions of same or opposite sex couples and any other form of union apart from marriage. It emphasized the sacred significance of the union of man and woman in Christ, describing it as a small church or an image of the church. Simultaneously, we underscore that individuals within the church who engage in alternative forms of union should be treated with pastoral responsibility and love in Christ. And I thought it was kind of ridiculous that to condemn same-sex marriage, they have to invoke Crete 2016, you know, not the scriptures or any other council or any other piece of holy tradition. They had to vindicate the fake council of Crete, but, you know, that just, that, that shows it for you. But many people had said, Greeks online, people said, you know, if Greece moves forward with this legalization of sodomite marriage, then you know, then maybe the Turks do deserve to invade and move in. And, you know, maybe a lot of these Greek, you know, know, some people, these are Greeks saying this, you know, I didn't say this, I don't believe that. But it reminds me of some recent words from Metropolitan Neophytos, who was speaking in Cyprus to a monastic group of people. And he said, he was quoting St. Paisios, and he had talked to St. Paisios about his future in monasticism and how he wanted to go to the Holy Mountain. And St. Paisios told him he can't go and stay on Athos. He has to go back to Cyprus and build monasteries, St. Paisios referred to them as like bases, like military bases in the spiritual war. You have to go build them in your homeland and you will find that that will bring you much spiritual fruit. And St. Paisio said that the problem of Cyprus is not a political one, but a spiritual one. He said the occupation of Turkey in the north is a spiritual problem, not something that can be resolved with just politics. And St. Paisios specifically said that these bases, these monasteries, will drive out the bases of the English, the Turks, as well as the bases of sin that you Greek Cypriots are building. So, you know, the the answer to all of this stuff, whether it's this gay marriage in Greece or, you know, Cyprus, Degeneracy, and whatnot, which, again, they're Greek Cypriots as well. It's the same nation. It, the answer is what these Athenite monks did to Elpidophoros. It's, you know, the church needs to act. The church needs to stand up and say no. Like, the Greek people do not support this. Polls show 55% of Greek people just right off the bat when polled completely against this. Only like 18% of Greeks support the current legislation in its form. So there's really no reason that this should happen at all. And the church needs to stand up and you know be the shepherds to the spiritual flock that they can be and need to be in a situation like this.
1: That's that's really well said, Conrad. I think it's it's important that like the church needs to needs to act as the soul the collective soul of the of the Orthodox nation people, especially a country like Greece where ninety percent of people are either you know church going or at least normally orthodox you know even more than ninety percent at somewhere like over ninety five percent at this point. but we just have to consider like this is the role of the church and you know most countries suffer with this particular view because modern society modern liberal culture and the way it has infected some of our societies destroys the way church you know church taught morality and ethics are actually implemented into everyday life like you know sin is a lot easier to adhere to these days and maybe even decades ago it's a lot more easily accessible and we're talking about various degrees of sin various types Things, uh, things are a lot looser. Even the old canons of the church aren't readily acceptable at all to, by today's standards because they're simply too harsh. We've fallen so much in our general morality. And this is, of course, this falls on the spiritual leaders to actually apply some of those uh, canonical economy of decisions to everyday life and actually lead us forward through these struggles. An example of that, right, let's just speak about the positive things which are taking place this week. Patriarch Kirill at the opening, uh, the Christmas readings which take place in, in Russia every year a few weeks after Orthodox Christmas on the 7th of January, he gave an opening speech before the Russian parliament, the Russian Duma, in which he spoke about three primary things. So this is before most of the deputies of the Russian Duma parliament, including Vyacheslav Volodyan, a lot of the Russian politicians from United Russia, even members of the Communist Party were there. And Patriarch Kirill spoke about three primary things, which we posted about in our telegram. The first thing was naturally his strong stance against abortion, calling abortion a directly murder, saying that it needs to be made illegal, essentially inaccessible. He spoke about private clinics not being able to operate and actually in induce abortions, he said that abortion is essentially a crime. And he summarized what a lot of us have been preaching and kind of you know talking about for a very long time. But to all these politicians who have essentially do they do have the authority to make this thing illegal, yet they've held they've held back for a few decades in Russia now at the moment. And this is something which was injected unfortunately into Russian culture and society by Vladimir Ulyanov Lenin and his Bolshevik compatriots in the early 20th century and which has continued to infest Russian society as this destructive moral disease to this day, right? This issue of abortion, sacrificing of children to Moloch and Baal, maybe even indirectly, but still very, very negative. Patriarch Hill spoke out against that. He spoke out against mass immigration, saying that look what's happening in Europe today the European people, this is paraphrasing patriarchal, this is the European people gave up on their Christian values. And so when they opened the doors for mass immigration through their liberal policies, the immigrants actually brought with them even more traditional values than the Europeans already held on to. And so a lot of Europeans have begun, instead of the actual Muslims and Africans assimilating into European Christian culture, it's the other way around. The actual Europeans are intermarrying and even assimilating into some of the various pagan and heathen cultures which are being brought into Europe itself because, well, Protestantism and lukewarm Catholicism simply isn't attractive, nor to the domestic residents, nor to the new foreign immigrants. So Patriarch says Russia has no reason to gloat over this particular issue Europe is facing, but it needs to actually prepare itself for potential a potential crisis in this field as well, given all the illegal immigrants we see coming from Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, things like that, which we've spoken about, and, you know, media companies like Sardegar have covered for a little while, and Patriarch himself is very focused on this mass immigration, the immigration of the Im- immigrant Muslims in particular, this issue, he's addressing it quite adequately. And of course, the third point Patriarch Kirill mentioned, this is his strongest point, he essentially called for the multipolarity. He said, you know, Russia at the moment, fortunately or unfortunately, is leading the world in the struggle against the system which will bring around the age of the Antichrist. Patriarch Kirill called Russia this collective leader, this katakon, and he said that we're holding back evil. And the fact he said that the Antichrist is a real personified figure which will come into the world. And at the moment, Russia is leading this resistance in the world against these destructive, deviant values which will bring about And I mean, this sounds really pathos filled like this is this speech, but I think it was, it's right. It takes somebody like Patriot Kirill to maybe it seems obvious to us and you guys, our listeners, but somebody like Patriot Kirill really needs to dot the I's and cross the T's to these important bureaucrats who essentially spend all day not reading any religious literature. He actually needs to accentuate the fact that the SMO is not just a local peacekeeping operation in the Ukraine of some sort. It's actually a civilizational battle against the forces of the Antichrist and its servants such as Zelensky and the Ukrainian government who are being led by, well, the people you know who are supporting Israel and all these other satanic projects around the world. And Patriarch Kirill made that very, very clear in his Duma speech. It's quite a great development. I think a very positive and hopeful message from our um, Russian hierarch.
0: I think that's about as good a place as I need to start wrapping this up. Of course, worldwarnow.co, worldwarnow.substack.com. You can find everything. We've got some really amazing articles coming up very soon, so be sure to subscribe there. Get on the email list. Get all of our content right in your inbox the moment it drops. World War Now on YouTube. Subscribe, like, leave a comment. Really like the videos. It helps us a lot if you smash the like button. And subscribe, of course. It helps us on YouTube to get boosted up in the algorithm. Of course, follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now telly. Follow me on Twitter at Rad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Rumble as well, World War Now. And just spread the word everywhere. Share the show, you know, send it around, and get behind the paywall if you want to support us, of course, on the substack, WorldWarNow.co. You get access to all of our ether hour episodes we had a great interview with anthony of westgate recently which should be in the link below so the link should be down in the description below so be sure to check that out it's a really great discussion about the the tunnels and some other you know esoteric stuff regarding our friends them boys so yeah check us out in all those places links are down below of course dimitri any last words on world war three
1: Yeah, I think, look, uh, we're following the news. It seems like every week, every fortnight, there are these new unexpected developments. I didn't think this immigrant crisis in Texas would actually, you know, we saw it coming up and we mentioned it a few months ago, but I didn't see it escalate to this so-called constitutional crisis. It's in at the moment and who knows where we'll be next week. So, of course, we ask everybody, you know, keep going to church, guys. Keep attending liturgies. Pray at home. Uh, You know, keep the fast. Follow the directions of your local priests, bishops. And if you're not an Orthodox Christian, you know, Get in touch with your local priest. Naturally, just go online, Google, where is my local Orthodox parish? Get involved directly because at this point, I'm not going to say you're in the, you know, you're missing out. But in fact, in it for a large portion, I think you're missing out. There's not much time of peace left. I think between between now and the major events to come, so I think it's good to spiritually prepare now for the potential tumultuous future coming up. Right, right now we actually, this post-COVID period, we do have the ability to fast, to attend church, to to practice and to build the spiritual disciplines which we can build in a time of peace relatively especially us in the western world at the moment crisis has not yet dawned upon us in full force so let's just use that and again me and conrad we uh we are doing a lot of things there's some great guests coming up naturally working on a lot of pretty cool projects so keep us in your prayers uh, clergy lady fellow brothers and sisters. And we thank you for listening to the show. 2024 is looking like it's going off, you know, starting off with a good blast and we're entering into the second month of the year. So looking forward to some uh, pretty positive developments, despite all of the somewhat negative and pretty uh, scary news that take place sometimes.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. God bless.